Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at New York University. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Richard, you have a new column up on the Hoover Institution's Defining Ideas uh, website. It's titled Elizabeth Warren's Unconstitutional Wealth Grab. Uh, it sounds it sounds intriguing, Richard. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about it. But this is a proposal that's all been over the news everywhere. Uh, Miss Warren put up on her site the proposal to even out this is the egalitarian impulse uh, by imposing a wealth tax on all assets held by all individuals. And if you had between fifty million and a billion dollars, the tax was two percent of the total value of the assets. Over a billion dollars, it's three percent. This is on capital; it's not on income, and is us a much more severe tax uh, than the tax which has been proposed by, amongst others, uh, Miss Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, I believe her name is, um, in which she wants a 7% income tax. And what I wrote about in this column, which I don't think I will bore people with here too much, is the long and convoluted history of whether or not a wealth tax is a direct tax, which takes us back as far as 1796 in the great case of Hilton against the United States, and then goes through all of the great income tax and inheritance tax cases in the late 19th and early 20th century. But I think for these purposes, it's important to understand not what the details of the tax are, but really what spurs it, because that's exactly the same as what spurs the, quote, much more modest proposal of the 70% progressive tax above some certain specified income level. And I think it is really a very powerful egalitarian impulse, which has taken over large parts of the American left. And to indicate exactly what it is that makes this egalitarian position, to my sense, somewhat perverse, is the way in which uh, you try to obtain the equality. And so I think it is perfectly sensible for somebody to try to create a system in which you could level up so that if one person is at 10 and another person is at 100, what you would like to do is to say that the increase of the buy at the bottom would be, say, by five, and the increase of the guy at the top would be by one. They'd narrow the gap and both of them would be improved. And that would have a relatively positive effect on resources because there would be more to go around. How much you want to try to dictate a process of private market transactions to goose the one number up relative to another is, I think, a very debatable question. I tend to be quite skeptical of this and take the older position. If you deregulate markets, there will be necessarily a kind of insecurity that will be introduced for people at the top who suffer competitive risk, and there'll be a kind of systematic increment in wages, as we've observed in the last six months to a year, coming from the fact that the markets are freed up and the demand for labor will drive the increase. Uh, But when you look at Ms. Warren and all of her ilk, uh, their basic provision is we're quite happy to level down. And what that means is that if it's 100 for one person and 1,000 for another person, if you kept the one at 100 or indeed reduced that wealth to 90, if you got the other guy down by 100 or 200 points, it would be a narrower gap and they would prefer uh, that particular situation. Uh, so the inequality, the inequality situation in effect becomes a dual ruin case in which both sides are left off by different kinds of amounts. Now, the question is, why is it that they kind of think that they ought to do this? And their basic position, which was outlined, for example, this morning in what I thought was a horrible column by Dave Leonard of the New York Times, is that inequality has been going and the rich have gotten richer and everybody else has gotten poorer. 
Uh, but what the paper, that article fails to identify is why that particular gap takes place, and it's very instructive. Uh, the basic explanation is wage stagnation reached its peak under the last eight years of Barack Obama. There was general increase in the amount of employment, uh, reversing previous earliest trends. There was good solid increases in the stock market, but wages were essentially left in some kind of a rut. Now, why was that? Well, if you put a large number of limitations on the ability of employers to hire workers, you put a large number of limitations on the ability of workers to accept offers that they're willing to take. And what the Obama administration did was just make it very hard for people to create jobs. Uh, they were very pro-union, and that tends to inhibit employment, very aggressive enforcement of the anti-discrimination laws, very aggressive appointment of other kinds of things like family leave statutes and so forth. And when you put all of this together, what happens is if a firm is inclined to incline and the labor side of the equation is being pushed down by regulation, what you'll do is you'll tend to invest more in capital and less in labor. That will essentially result in the rich getting a little bit richer and the workers getting a little bit poorer by virtue of what's going on. Uh, so if you understand what the source of the disease is, you don't want to double down on a failed policy. What you want to do is to remove the regulations to see wages going up. And if you start doing that, you'll discover what's happened in the last six months. There was a great piece recently about handicapped workers in the Wall Street Journal, and all of a sudden they're in demand. Not by every employer. It never works like that. But if you have people with certain kinds of disabilities, like autism, it makes them extremely strong at certain kinds of activities, like using numbers and making sure that forms are correctly filled out and that invoices match the data set of which they're a part and all the rest of that. And all of a sudden, these people start getting hired for those jobs, and everybody loves it because now they're part of a productive universe. And that is what has happened to all of the most despised groups, so-called in American economy, the disabled, the former convicts, a minority teenagers. Every one of these groups has increased in, uh, an increase in employment. And so if you're a libertarian, the last thing you want to do is to tax capital. The last thing you want to do is to regulate labor markets. What you want to do is to reduce capital um, tax taxation so as to increase investment and in reduce regulation so you could get people in there. So this whole egalitarian movement essentially will be self-perpetuating. All their initiatives will fail. Or these people will not understand why they failed. And what they will then do, having failed, is double down on a series of failures uh, one way or another. Uh, so watching the intellectual move today is like watching a suicide march start to take place. They do not know the determinants of success and failure. What they think is a cure is, in fact, the continuation of the disease. Well, Richard, since it is a podcast on, on policy and law, let's go back to that first point about the direct tax. Uh, your column at Defining Ideas levies a lot of criticism at the letters that Senator Warren has, has brought together, two one-page letters in support of a proposal. One <laughs> relies on a Law Review article by Don Johnson, uh, uh, not, we'll not, not Don Johnson, the, the actor, but Don Johnson, the professor at the University of Indiana, and, and Walter Dellinger. Dellinger. That's right. And they wrote this in 2018 on the constitutionality of a wealth tax. There's a second article uh, from 1999 by Yale's Bruce Ackerman um, saying that a wealth tax is constitutional. You say that this might run afoul of the Constitution's prohibition or the Constitution's restriction on direct taxes. What's a direct tax and what, how does the Constitution deal with it? 
Yes, well, uh, the direct tax is a very slippery term. A direct tax is some portion of a general tax that is clearly distinguished from the other three things that are listed, um, which are duties, imposts, and excises. Duties, imposts, and excises are understood to apply to particular kinds of transactions like buying and selling a share of stock. So you have an excise tax, for example, on the importation of beer. What an excise tax is is actually kind of tricky because can you have an excise tax, which is exceeds the value of the commodity that's being sold. At that point, it doesn't look like a tax. It looks like a prohibition because nobody's going to sell a good for 10 if they have to pay an excise tax of 20. So mm-hmm. there's that on one side. Then on the other side, there's an income tax. And, and what is the definition of income? Well, the classic definition of income is it's the gain that derives from some combination of labor and capital in pursuit of some activity. And so if you start to work a job or to rent something out, that would start to look like that. A direct tax is generally thought to be a tax which is imposed per capita on the head of a given individual. So you pay a certain amount no matter how much you earn or no matter what you do. And it's also uh, laid as a tax on the ownership of a certain kind of asset, most notably real property. But clearly, if you're going to be serious about this, all forms of intellectual property, things like spectrum and so forth are there just by virtue of its ownership, not by virtue of the rent that it gives. Now, why do they put this distinction? Well, if you go back to 1787, uh, these people were very much worried about the question of how it is that you get the states to join in a union without having some states essentially get a subsidy from other states. And the direct tax was an anti-subsidy device. And so what it meant, in effect, is you have to apportion by population. So if two states essentially had the same population and you were going to put a tax as they did on luxury carriages and in one state you had twice as many luxury carriages as you had in the other, in order to make sure that the people who had more luxury carriages did not pay more than their pro rata share by population, the tax on the state which had double was one half of the tax on the states which had only half of that particular amount. And so these are not uniform across individuals and the theory is you have two states of equal population and if you put the direct tax prohibition on it, uh, the citizens on one state are not going to have to put more into the government than the other. Now, the obvious reason for doing this is to try and discourage direct taxation. Mm-hmm. Uh, which effectively become absolutely crazy when you have multiple states, differences in, in the frequency and the use of items, their valuation and all the rest of it. So they had a strong prohibition. And the case uh, that came up was a case called Hilton and Gaio, interesting case, in which there were not Hilton and Gaio, Hilton against the United States, in which there was this tax on carriages and differential penetration in different states. And there was a huge argument as to whether this was or was not a direct tax. And what happened is uh, there were two statements of notice that were ignored in this particular article. Uh, One uh, was a statement that uh, Hamilton said, this is an indirect tax, uh, but any tax which is put on pump somebody's general wealth, i.e. a general wealth tax, would surely be a direct tax. And that passage is not quoted in this article. And then the other ground for distinction, which is kind of specious, is one which said, aha, uh, a wealth tax does not work on consumer on consumables, only on durables, which is a very difficult proposition that nobody thought about. So Hamilton essentially thought the wealth tax was a direct tax and could not be done. Uh, the next case is a case called Pollock against Farmer's Loan, and this is from 1895. And this case held 
dubiously, uh, that a tax on the income from lease property is a direct tax because it was exactly proportionate to the ownership of property, which is not quite right, particularly since leases often have service components associated with their operation. And that case spent an enormous amount of time uh, distinguishing the Hilton against the United States case in order to make itself out. It provoked a huge response. Uh, People just were upset about this because by 1895, your civil war is far enough behind you. People start thinking about taxes on individuals rather than cross-subsidies across states. And there's no question that the the 16th Amendment passed in 1913. It says that when you levy an Inca tax on income, it could be done independent of the apportionment and independent of the population. That is for the income of the direct tax prohibition was lifted. Uh, But with respect to the wealth tax side, it still remained. Well, Bruce then says, aha, but there's this case called Knowlton and Moore decided in in 1900. And what that tax did was to uh, sustain a state, a federal tax on inheritance. Now, an inheritance tax is imposed only once at the time of death. And its distinctive feature, unlike an estate tax, is the inheritance tax is measured per recipient, whereas the estate tax bumps everything together. So you can beat an inheritance tax by having 16 children. It will have very little to do uh, with a, uh, an estate tax. But of course, what they said in that case had nothing to do with Pollock and Farmer's loan. Uh, it had to do with the fact that this was a tax on succession, and that's a standard excise. And if there were constitutional doubts about it, they said, well, these things have been around for 75 years. We're not going to strike them down now. And in fact, they followed a state rule in a case called Magoon two years earlier, which also did that. So there's absolutely no connection between the two lines of cases, the succession cases and the direct tax cases. And Bruce writes this article in which he thinks that the succession cases define the limits and cut back on the other cases, which is crazy given the fact that since there were two lines of authority – Pollock and Farmer's Loan is not mentioned in either the Magoon case at the state level or in the Knowlton and Moore case at the federal level. Uh, So the clear history of this is direct taxes on total wealth are either a head tax for the person who owns it or a property tax that would be unconstitutional. I then added in this particular paper a second point, which is wholly apart from these things. Uh, There is an implicit constitutional tension between the basic position, which says, aha, we look at takings in one box, peace power in another box, and taxation in another box, and never shall the twain meet. Um, But if you then go back to some of the cases from this period, uh, most notably a case called Brushhaber, the court is very uneasy about this and says, if you really push a tax too much to an extreme, it will count as a taking of property because it's confiscation. And oddly enough, while people today don't resonate to the direct tax stuff, they certainly resonate very, very clearly to the confiscation stuff. And uh, this wealth tax has got to be a straight case of confiscation because there's no limiting principle. 2% on up to a billion and 3% thereafter could be 20% on the one and 10% on the other. And unlike the estate tax and unlike the inheritance tax, this is an annual tax. The others just are one and done. Uh, So it is a completely different beast. And to write two letters without talking about any of the complexity and pronounce these things constitutional in a way that would even satisfy originals like myself, it seems to me to be really very, very sloppy. So I did write a long column on this, and uh, frankly, I don't think those letters should have been sent, and I don't think they should have been published. Well, I chuckled at at the the last line, or the line towards the end of Ackerman's letter. This is the letter where Ackerman, Professor Bruce Ackerman writes a letter citing Professor Bruce Ackerman in the third person, describing his analysis. Towards the end, he says, no thoughtful originalist can conclude 
that uh, that the, the the direct tax. Uh, the, the the Constitution's provisions for direct taxes touch on the wealth tax. That no thoughtful originalist can disagree with the the constitutional analysis of Senator Warren and Professor Ackerman. I find that dubious. I think Richard, I think of you as a thoughtful originalist. Well, so thank I, uh, you. Um, and you know, I'm a half original. I'm an originalist in one sense. I'm not a textualist. I'm not quite right. a structuralist. Right. Um, but I've, I'm most influenced by the Roman modes of interpretation of statute, levered by the following element. If you go back to Magoon, it started with the customary point. Uh, that point turns out to be hugely important in 19th century constitutional and administrative law in terms of the way in which we deal with things like the structure of Article uh, Three Courts and Murray's lessee against the city of Hoboken used the customary argument. I tend to think those things really matter as an offset against the history. I called it in my book the prescriptive constitution uh, and it's a real tension as to how you reconcile them. But the thought that somehow the one-page analysis which misses every relevant point is dispositive against a so-called thoughtful originalist, uh, it's just looking down your nose at people. Um, this is really part of the debate that's very, very sad. People are so anxious on their, on their egalitarian screed they don't do anything. So in the Johnson and Dellinger article, it begins with a paragraph talking about the vi- virtues or the vices of, egalit- of inequalities of wealth, no citations, no discussion whatsoever, and then they launch immediately into the heavy reliance on the Hilton case in order to do things the other way around. I don't think that the Supreme Court's going to buy this thing. I frankly don't think that it will make it through any serious situation. Just think of the implications. We now decide to imply a wealth tax on every great university in the United States. We don't limit it to how Households we limited to places like Harvard, so Harvard's going to have to pay a three percent wealth tax on essentially you know a thirty billion dollars worth of stuff, and you know that's a lot of money. It's a billion bucks a year that you're going to have to toss out the window, and that's going to unbalance every budget that one ever has. And so I hope it doesn't go through, but it is a sign of the Pollyannish view. That somehow or other, if you take wealth from somebody, have no idea what you're going to do with it, have no idea of the negative consequences on the individuals from whom it's taken, you will solve the problems of inequality, which are better addressed, I think, under all of these cases by simply removing market constraints and watching real wages rise. Now, Richard, you convinced me on the first, the first constitutional analysis, but when you get to the part about the takings clause, mm-hmm. uh, here's where I need a little bit more convincing. Uh, you say you're not alone. You well, I know. You say at some point uh, a tax can become so confiscatory that it becomes a, a, a an unconstitutional taking. Now, of course, a tax always takes from you. It takes money from you. What's the dividing line between a tax that is constitutional, say an income, we'll say a, an income tax that is constitutional, and an income tax that violates the takings clause? Okay, let's uh, let me start with an excise tax first, which I think sure, illustrates. Sure. Um, there's a case called the child labor tax cases from 1923, and this followed Hammer and Dagenhart. And Hammer and Dagenhart was a case where the Supreme Court struck down a total prohibition by Congress on the shipment into interstate goods of any firm that made any goods with child labor, even if the goods were not sold in interstate commerce. Essentially, what they deprived you of the interstate markets. And the Supreme Court, in my view, correctly said that's an unconstitutional extension of the federal commerce power. And immediately they said, we're going to replace it with a tax. Now, what was the tax? The tax was an excise tax. And on the first piece of furniture you sent into interstate commerce, the tax was sent at 10% of the gross profits of the firm. That can't be a tax. 
An excise tax, by definition, has to be under the value of the goods that have been imposed. And this is not even related to the goods. It's related to the profits. And if you could relate it to the profits, you could relate it to the revenues and so forth. And if you don't send that first good into interstate commerce, you don't send anybody else. So that's a prohibition. That would be a classic case of a taking. 100% tax would obviously be a case of a taking. Now, when you go lower, there are two theories that you can use, and here's where it becomes extremely difficult. The Epstein position on most of these positions is uh, the taxation under the Constitution at the federal level is essentially a benefit theory. What the government does is it raises money, and it does so for the common defense to pay the debt. That's the national debt, and to provide for the general welfare of the United States. That's all states inclusive, not the general welfare of any particular individual under these circumstances. And if you have that as a kind of a benefit theory of taxation, that you keep the taxes flat, and it turns out that they rise and fall with revenue needs, but there's no ability with a flat tax to shift wealth back and forth across individuals, so the confiscation risk isn't there. The reason why your question is so telling is once you abandon this particular theory, um, what happens is uh, you can now have income taxes that are progressive, and there's a massive wealth transfer that can take place between one set of individuals and another set of individuals. Uh, why would I say this tax is unconstitutional given that history? Because if you applied it to the income tax, the implicit rule was that it was always less than 100%, whereas the wealth tax, when you apply it, can easily, when combined with an income tax, exceed and exceed quite substantially the total amount of wealth that any person had. So I would say, whether you call it an income tax or a transfer tax, the moment you get above 100% of income, given our constitutional history and tradition, and remember, just a moment ago, I said how important those things are, the bottom line on this stuff is that the whole thing becomes unconstitutional. This is a much less generous test than I would use. Um, to get, as I, I said to you, I'm in favor of a flat tax at the constitutional level on all wealth. Uh, this is not a crazy position. If you go back to the Minnesota Star case from 1983, Sandra Day O'Connor announced exactly that rule under the First Amendment for taxes on newspapers. It had to be flat in order to be constitutional. Why that? Her attitude is you have a flat tax, you could reach any revenue target that you want, and at 100% you can't get there, you can borrow money against future claims, and on the other hand, you can't play political stuff that would poison us by magnifying the influence of faction, which is obviously what she's appealing to. Uh, Miss Warren regards it as an advantage to say only 75,000 families are going to have to file these returns, which could never be basically audited before the next year comes around. That's 0.01% of the total population. But when you isolate a minority like that, that's a reason not to have a tax rather than to impose it because you could say all the gain is concentrated in a large group and all the pain is concentrated in a very small group. That's the absolute antithesis of a serious system of congressional and constitutional government. I agree. And even just setting aside the legal point, as you note at the very end, just the sheer impracticality of this tax, the idea that every year uh, even 75,000 families will calculate their wealth or have their wealth, their, their wealth calculated and then have that taxed, just the sheer complexity of that and the amount of audits and the amount of, of dispute over how to value various assets just becomes uh, incomprehensible. It's not a serious policy proposal. What it is, it's a political, uh, political rallying cry. It's kind of like Trump's wall. It's never going to be built, but it motivates your, def- your, your supporters to think directionally 
right? To think that you're actually in support of, of whatever their real policy proposals are because you're willing to support something so outlandish, this um, is the, even though it's impractical. This is the stalking horse for the 70% income tax. Yeah. So, Richard, let's change gears a little bit and go from uh, taxes to the administrative state. Um, you filed an amicus brief, I believe, this week. Uh, it may have been just a few days ago in a case called Kaiser versus Wilkie. It's a Supreme Court case that'll be uh, argued in March, and it has to do with uh, the the issue of judicial deference to an agency's interpretation of its own regulations. Conservatives, going back to Justice Scalia's opinion in a case called Talk America back in about 2011, have been arguing that the Supreme Court should return to a doctrine of called Seminole Rock, or our, A-U-E-R, deference, long-standing doctrines under which the courts give utmost deference to an agency's interpretation of the agency's own regulation. For a long time, Scalia and others were supporters of that doctrine. Then Scalia and others concluded that actually there's a big constitutional problem here in terms of the courts deferring to agencies. Uh, in some ways, it reflects the broader debate we're having over Chevron deference, which involves the the interpretation of statutes, but this is interpretation of agency regulations. And Scalia's point has been, and drawing from an article by John Manning about 15 years earlier, is that when judges defer to an agency's interpretation of the agency's own regulation, they're in effect combining the legislative, judicial, and executive powers in a single branch. The agency itself writes the regulation. The agency itself enforces the regulation, and the agency itself interprets the regulation. Scalia, beginning in 2011, said we need to undo this. We need the courts themselves to do the work of interpreting agency regulations uh, de novo, we'd say, without deference. And now, finally, after a, a stream of concurring opinions from Justices Scalia, Thomas and others, and a, a, an ever-growing pile of uh, academic literature on the subject, we finally have a Supreme Court case where the doctrine is being taken head-on. So you joined a brief with our colleague, Professor McConnell, and others, including uh, Professor Jonathan Adler and uh, the Cato Institute, calling on the Supreme Court to do away completely with this form of deference. Why should we get rid of it? Well, I think the danger of, of abuse is simply manifest, not so much in the existing case that got up there, but the Hour case is a classic illustration of just how partisan the politics can be and how the same dangerous the practice can be. Justice Scalia, when he mused in later years about how dubious this diction was, said, well, who wrote that ridiculous opinion in Hour anyhow, only yeah. to be told, sadly, that he had written it himself. And, and he was in a very different mood at that time. He was always a defender of Chevron deference, a cautious defender, but a defender no less, probably on the ground that Congress, when it passed these particular delegations, wanted the agencies to do these things, and the courts, given that explicit delegation of tasks, could not intervene. I think that theory is to some extent wrong, uh, because if you look at the Administrative Procedure Act, and a point on which you and I have disagreed from time to time, it's quite clearly that that statute generally has a higher standard of oversight with respect to pure legal questions than it does for 
fact questions or mixed questions of fact and law. Is this particular dam a menace to some significant endangered species or something of the sort? Uh, so one of the problems that we had in writing our brief, and it's an important issue, is we could not in this particular brief attack Chevron as such. We had to attack our and, and sort of make, how do we say, a cautious peace with Chevron on the theory that in litigation you take one step at a time and that our is of more recent vintage than is Chevron. It is also, I think, essentially of greater concern. Now, uh, with Chevron, what happens is uh, you do have the argument that there's some delegation. Uh, the level of deference is highest when they're notice and common proceedings, which means there's some degree of external scrutiny. When you get to our, it can be anyone doing anything inside an agency, and, and there is no sort of collective process that deals with the interpretation of a regulation issue as there is in the formulation of the agency. Uh, so if you take the area involved in our, it was, again, a case under the Fair Labor Standards Act trying to figure out who counts as an uh, officer or a professional or an executive who's not subject to overtime regulations and who is. And the obviously sensible way of looking at this is to take a manual out and see what it is. And you will discover that police sergeants, police lieutenants, and police captains supervise other individuals. So they're not simple employees. They're supervisory employees and they're not covered. But what happened is Justice Scalia glommed on to this little proceeding or position which said that if in fact you're an officer, and what you do is you engage in some kind of misconduct. They don't have to fire you. They may be able to demote you a little bit. And he compared those kinds of demotions uh, with what happens in piecework on assembly lines, namely a worker who gets the minimum wage will not, in effect, be able to trigger a violation if he's docked five cents per unit because he has messed up on the production of a given unit. Uh, what is an hour under the Wage and Hours Act? One of the most complicated questions in the world. Uh, but then you have to assume that somehow or other these little fines for poor work are the same thing as disciplining procedures for serious officers in the face of the overwhelming evidence uh, that these characters have extensive discretion in the way in which they carry out their work. And so what happens is you get Tom Perez or somebody like him as the Secretary of Labor, and what they do is they always, on the Democratic side, read the coverages of these statutes for the maximum impact. There was a mortgage broker's case um, in 2015 in which that had been done by Perez, and you can see they just take the definition far beyond any ordinary meaning of the situation. Well, this has enormous implications. These are jurisdictional rules. And what you're doing is you're allowing an agent who is essentially a partisan on one side of the political thing uh, to extend enormously the scope of the statute. The Republicans come in, then they start to cut it back again. You have to figure out what's going to happen to all the changes with interim activities that are done. And our position was that certainly given this level of abuse, insisting that these guys apply the ordinary meaning to the terms that they're construing is a perfectly appropriate judicial text test or constraint. It doesn't require, of course, to do anything that they don't do in all sorts of statutory interpretation case where there's no administrative agency. And essentially, you'll get a better system if you apply it that way. Uh, in my own view, I'm certainly willing to take on Chevron, at least with respect to pure questions of law. But that's an issue. I think that could wait until another day. The important thing is to establish as a basic proposition that untrammeled deference to the way in which um, administrative agents and various kinds of officers work uh, should not be given a carte blanche by the court. 
Justice Kavanaugh has clearly stated that in his lower court opinions. Uh, Justice Gorsuch has been even more emphatic upon the issue. Uh, Justice Thomas seems to be switching in his position opinion on this thing. Uh, Justice Alito, I think, has always been in that camp, and that leaves it to the enigmatic Justice Chief Justice John Roberts, who was likely to be on this case the swing vote uh, now that Justice Anthony Kennedy is no longer on the bench. Well, you're you're right, or you're right that we've we've discussed Chevron deference a few times in the past, and we do disagree a little bit about it. I tend to be more of the mend it, don't end it school. I think Chevron. I still think Chevron is compatible with the Administrative Procedure Act. I think it's compatible with notions of judicial duty and so on. Um, I think Chevron is probably worth saving, although it needs to be fixed. In fact, I'm going to be at Texas Tech's law school this week in an event for the Federal Society where I'll be basically defending Chevron, and a, a, a center-left law professor, a friend of mine, will be criticizing Chevron, which sort of flips the current argument on its head. Although, of course, for the longest time, Chevron's staunchest defenders were on the right, and its staunchest critics tended to be on the left. But but that said, I do agree with you on your basic uh, assessment of our deference, uh, that it does have some flaws that Chevron deference, I think, just doesn't have. I think Scalia is right that there is something that, that should raise constitutional red flags or yellow flags when you have the same part of government having so much power over the, the writing, enforcing, and adjudication of law. And so I'm, I th- I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will undo our deference, seminal rock deference. But it does, I have to say, leave us in an interesting position. Let's say the court does get rid of our deference or seminal rock deference, and it says we're going to be deferential when we interpret statutes but not deferential when we interpret regulations. It's hard for me to imagine that equilibrium staying in place very long. It's, if you just imagine what the work of a job would be like. You'd have judges, or the work of a judge would be like. You'd have judges coming in, being faced with interesting statutory issues, big policy questions, and saying, well, I'm going to defer on these, but I'm going to spend a lot of time and energy parsing the meaning of these, of these esoteric regulations. It's hard for me to see judges maintaining a deferential mindset on the statutory side when they've adopted a non-deferential mindset on the regulatory side. So even though the two doctrines aren't literally connected, you can be pro-Chevron and anti-Seminal Rock as a matter of theory. I think as a matter of practical reality, the end of our deference is going to signal the end of, of or the, the, the modification of Chevron deference in years to come. I will say, a few years ago, I was involved in a symposium on SCOTUS blog asking whether the court might ever strike down Seminole Rock or our deference. This was in 2016, and far and away, the overwhelming conventional wisdom among the the contributors to the symposium was that our and Seminole Rock wouldn't go away anytime soon. There just weren't enough votes for it. I wrote explaining why the court might at least modify our and Seminole Rock to make them more limited in their application. But then I said at the end, sort of half-jokingly, maybe the best way to get uh, the court to, to do away with our deference would be if somehow Donald Trump were elected president in the coming fall, then maybe suddenly the judges would become less deferential, including Judge uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was kidding at the time, because of course this was when the polls uh, seemed to signal President Trump wasn't going to have a very good day on election night. Obviously that prediction proved completely wrong, and now we'll see if the court's interested in being less deferential. 
Well, I have two observations. One is we still have 2020 and 2021. The long-term systematic effect of deference has always been to extend the scope of statutes uh, and regulations that have been passed by Congress or adopted by agencies. And I think the Democrats are doing this much more than Republicans. And we are now in a state of disequilibrium where there's a short-term price to this and a long-term gain uh, from the point of view of the Democrats to keep the old system alive. My guess is that they will probably uh, stomach Trump, displace him, it seems certainly possible in 2021 and then business as usual. Uh, the conservatives, I think, may like this in terms of what Trump is doing, certainly with respect to certain kinds of environmental situations. But the difference is most of the Trump stuff is getting rid of the exotic interpretations that were imposed by the Obama administration. Uh, going back to ordinary meaning uses, like, for example, you know, what is a systematic change with respect to some piece of environmental equipment and so forth? How far can you take those changes and use them? to impose general systems of uh, uh, greenhouse gas controls and the like. So I don't think the Republicans will switch. They don't need Chevron to do what they want to do. They're dismantling it. As to the sort of the mental split on the head, um, I think you're obviously right at some level, but let me at least indicate why it is that a split mind sometimes does work. And that would be very simply this. We have Chevron and we don't have Chevron. Uh, so we have Skidmore deference, which is a decent respect, but not abject deference. Everybody understands there's a difference in layers. And I think you can argue that these two things do get confused in practice, but the judges seem to do okay in trying to keep them apart. So now you've got another standard in there, which is less deference than Skidmore, which is, I think, the way we would both read the end of our. Uh, and so I think they could probably do it. But in the end, the real pressure is not only the bleeding things over, it's you can't get yourself a coherent theory of separation of powers, which treats the judiciary as sitting on the sidelines when it comes to the question of the ordinary meaning of statutory terms. In fact, I've written many pieces which follow the same very simple position. I don't care whether you're interpreting a constitution, a statute a regulation or a contract, uh, the only sound rule of interpretation, as naive as it sounds, is that of ordinary language. Uh, they're obviously difficult in its application, but the moment you start having deference, whether it be under the constitutional rational basis test, under Chevron or our deference, or in the law of contract under the doctrine of contra pro forentum, i.e., a term shall be construed against the powerful party that drafted the standard form agreement. You never know how much deference there is, and they all fall apart. So you use ordinary language and a little bit of common sense. That's the way in which you deal with the meaning issues. And then there are other questions having to do with the choice of remedy and the nature of the justifications, which for the most part you can't solve textually under the statutes because these statutes are, and contracts are always underpowered. But at least if you start from the right place, you're going to do better. And having taught in all of these particular areas over the year, as I get older, I get more simple-minded. And I hope you can join me in that particular task. Keep it simple, stupid, and you may actually get it right. What better words to close on? Uh, Richard, I think uh, this exhausts our time for today. But as always, I've enjoyed this conversation. I hope the audience has as well. I hope you'll tune in next time. And in the meantime, please check out our colleagues' podcasts at the Hoover Institution, Richard's podcast, The Libertarian, Victor Davis Hansen's podcast, The Classicist, and many more. Until next time, thank you for joining us. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.